Listener Production. So whenever you hear a story about boys and young men behaving badly, it's often referred to as toxic masculinity. So what does that term actually mean to boys? When I think about toxic masculinity, I actually just think about intergenerational trauma. And I think about the models of masculinity that have been handed down from generation to generation. So that's a guy called Hunter Johnson, and he's going out and meeting thousands of boys in schools. And he's trying to reframe toxic masculinity and teach boys about positive masculinity. It's really interesting work and a really interesting interview. That's after today's headlines. First, Rana Patrick is here for those headlines. It is Thursday, October 6th. Rain is pouring and flood watches are in place across New South Wales, southern Queensland and northern Victoria. Yeah, so some parts of eastern Australia have already had 150 millimetres in the last week and now a big trough is coming across, bringing potentially 100 millimetres more rain in some areas. Campers at Bathurst, um, that's where the big racetrack is, they've been told to move to higher ground and South Australia has begun a massive clean-up after storms severed power lines, brought down trees and shut off roads. Yeah, and in Sydney, only about 80 millimetres more rain is needed to break the annual record, which was set in 1950, of almost 2,200 millimetres. Isn't that crazy? And it's still only October, and this uh, La Nina is supposed to peak in November, so there's going to be a lot more rain. We are... quite sadly, are going to smash that annual record. Yeah, it's just coming down, isn't it? And I'm already feeling for those communities that are already feeling uh, that wet. And the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is set to host the Solomon Islands Prime Minister today in a bid to reset the relationship. Anthony Albanese has described the meeting as incredibly important. Yeah, it follows a new report which found the Chinese Communist Party launched a disinformation campaign suggesting Australia instigated riots in the island nation's capital last year. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, pretty subversive. So tensions between Australia and Solomon Islands um, really kind of sparked up last year when uh, the Solomon Islands signed that security pact with China, which Australia didn't know about until it was happening. Uh, and only weeks ago, Manasseh Sogavare, the Prime Minister of Solomon Islands, berated Australia for offering to fund its elections, saying it amounted to foreign interference. So uh, I think it's going to be a pretty interesting uh, meeting when they catch up. It's a lot happening. Um, but I think, you know, one of those things about that agreement too, I think, is that a lot of those other Pacific uh, Island nations have raised concerns um, particularly about that pact, like Fiji and Micronesia, you know, who have talked very much about any security agreement uh, should have regional consensus. So I wonder if that's also on the table today. And Alec Baldwin, the actor, has reached a settlement with the family of the cinematographer who was fatally shot on a film set last year. Yeah, Helena Hutchins was working on the film Rust when a prop gun that Baldwin was holding went off killing her. And the lawsuit alleged industry standard violations and claimed corners were cut in production, hiring the cheapest crew possible. Yeah, there was a big war of words after this happened and obviously a lot of sadness and emotion. But now that this... Our lawsuit has been settled out of court. Um, Helena Hutchins' widower, Matthew Hutchins, has issued a statement saying all of us believe Helena's death was a terrible accident and the filming of Russ will resume with all the original principal players on board in January and he'll now be an executive producer on the film. 
Here in Alec Baldwin's lawyer has issued a statement also saying that everyone has maintained the specific desire to do what is best for Helena's son, uh, who is nine years old. Yeah, so it begs the question, how much money is the family going to get? And we don't know because it's an undisclosed settlement. But given how carefully crafted those statements were, you'd have to assume it was a big number. Yeah, and kind of interesting that he's now the EP of it. And the Essendon versus Andrew Thorburn story is attracting a lot of heated debate after the AFL club dumped Thorburn as CEO just 30 hours into the job because of his religious affiliations. And the fact that uh, an individual can be sacked from a position because of his religious belief doesn't have any place in our country. Yeah, that's the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, and the Archbishop of Melbourne has also weighed in, saying that he's no longer an Essendon supporter. Yeah, so just to recap you on this, Thorburn came under pressure to quit because, um, as well as taking on this new job at Essendon, he's also the chair of a church called City on the Hill. And quotes from a 2013 sermon came out in the Herald Sun. Now, this was from a sermon not from Thorburn, but from uh, another person in the church and there were some pretty horrific statements um, denouncing homosexuality likening abortion to murder and the operation of concentration camps so in response to that even Dan Andrews weighed in saying it was appalling the pressure was on Essendon and then they gave Thorburn an ultimatum step down from his role at the church or his new job at Essendon and he put his connection to the church first he's now issued a second statement saying it's a very troubling idea that someone's faith or association with a church could render a person immediately unsuited to hold a particular role. Um, so it's really sparking that religious freedom debate, Rihanna. What do you think about this story? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And I guess it's um, in the world that we live in at the moment, it's, it's kind of interesting too that this is where Andrew Thorburn has decided to go, which is to put his religion first. Um, but also interesting too that the Archbishop of Melbourne has said, well, I'm not going to be an Essendon supporter anymore. Yeah, well, it's clearly made him pretty upset. And I think, you know, nearly half of Australians said they were Christians in the census. So that's a lot of people who have Christian beliefs that don't always fit with the the diversity and inclusion statements of organisations like AFL clubs or, or big corporations. So um, these clashes do seem to be occurring more and more and they really divide people. Um, we talked about this yesterday with Antoinette. Um, it seems to be a massive mishandling by Essendon. This really should have been hammered out before he took the job, not hastily blown up into a crisis a day and a half after he started. New court documents have revealed abuse allegations against Brad Pitt from his former wife, Angelina Jolie. It goes back to a flight in 2016, which ended their relationship. Yeah, so these court papers accuse Pitt on that flight of grabbing her by the head and shaking her before then choking one of the children and striking another kid when they tried to defend her. Now, Brad Pitt has previously denied similar accusations of abuse made by Jolie and an FBI investigation into what happened on that flight at the time did not lead to any charges. But some of these details are new and they've come up in uh, an ongoing lawsuit um, between the couple over a French vineyard um, they bought together. All right, that is it for our headlines. Um, Rihanna, we'll catch you again tomorrow. Antoinette's about to join me for this interview with Hunter Johnson.
G'day, it is Antoinette Latouf here. So toxic masculinity, we've established it's not a good thing, not a good thing for men, not a good thing for women, and we no longer accept the excuse that boys will be boys. So what exactly do we want boys to be? Let's get into it with Hunter Johnson. He's the founder and CEO of Man Cave. It's an emotional intelligence charity and in workshops with 30,000 young men around Australia, he's been unpacking the idea of toxic masculinity and refocusing on positive masculinity. Hunter, thanks so much for joining us. I think first off, we need to unpack toxic masculinity because it gets thrown around a lot, but what does it actually mean? Yeah, this is an important conversation I think to be having, but often I actually don't use the phrase toxic masculinity. I just Mm. find it's too divisive. Um, When I think about toxic masculinity, I actually just think about intergenerational trauma. And I think about the, uh, I guess, the models of masculinity that have been handed down from generation to generation. You know, even thinking about World War II coming back, you know, often a lot of men coming back from those wars, carrying a lot of trauma, passing that into their family situations, their interpersonal relationships, their workplaces, their communities. And I think that's where we see a lot of this kind of very unhealthy behaviors that often, uh, if we put the technical hat on, it's really about believing in rigid gender stereotypes, individual success over collective success, uh, homophobia, just a complete stoicism and uh, I guess non-help-seeking behaviour. That's what I think the academics would say that toxic masculinity is. And yeah, what I'm interested in is now what's what's next? You know, how do we acknowledge that's where we've come from and know that we do, uh, well, we have this exciting opportunity to create a positive future state for masculinity. Yeah, it's become a powerful word to describe bad male behaviour Um, But I guess it gets attached to so many different elements and the meaning of it, I I wonder, is it now at the point where it does more harm than good to young men? You're coming face to face with them. Um, You've been face to face with 30,000 young men. So how is this sort of conversation, the use of this term, how, how are they seeing it? Super confused. And, you know, I see this across the spectrum, like on a personal level, you know, one of my brothers works in the mines, the other works on a farm, the other's a heavy diesel mechanic apprentice. I talk about feelings for a living, so we're in very different worlds. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I just watch the more progressive people are getting, it's compounding on itself. And so the Mm. language, the, how personal it is for people is effectively, and the education required to keep up with how much vernacular and vocabulary is growing, it's creating significant divide for men, let alone teenagers, you know, who are going through the tumultuous teenage years of just trying to fit in at the best of times and worry about your pimples. And so what we see in high school is that, yeah, boys don't get it. They feel like they're being labelled as the entire problem. But had the, the recent discourse given them the impression that that term meant all men were toxic? Yeah, I think it does. And this is where it gets really layered, right? Because we need to have this conversation and we need to have this conversation, particularly with men around stepping up into more positive, healthy behaviours in the mainstream. And also there's a cost when this language goes viral and these teenage boys are living on their devices, you know, whether it's TikTok, Snapchat, Mm. whatever it is. And then the algorithm just compounds, unfortunately, often very unhealthy content. There is a risk though when you get caught up in semantics and a similar thing happened with all lives matter as a pushback to black lives matter when all the fixation becomes but we're not all like this um it's like well you're kind of missing the point and so how do you manage moving the conversation on from just one about semantics and going okay i get that labels may be problematic 
but there are some real issues that are having significant impacts on both men and women, and that's what we need to fix. Well, we talk to the issues is, Mm. you know, when we bring out the statistics, it's, you know, one in four to five young people are experiencing mental illness before they're 18. Suicide is the leading cause of death under the age of 25. So not drink driving, not overdosing on drugs, not coward punching themselves. Mm. And the other side of that is more than one woman every week is murdered through intimate male family violence. No one has had that conversation with them. And also the statistic, it just kind of, it's a bit ethereal. So we bring it into practicality. It's like, hey, cool. Who's got a sister? Who's got an auntie? Who's got a mother? Who's got a grandmother? Right. This statistic now relates to you. And I think that's the edge that we try to walk across is how do you make this emotionally relevant to them earlier on? And I think that's when we start to see these like corporate execs who have daughters and they're like, oh, I care about gender equality now. You're like, oh, okay, well, what's actually happening there? It's now suddenly relevant to them. So it's like, how do we bring that a little bit more forward, but also not make it this super woke, super virtue signaling thing. It's like, I fundamentally believe when stripped away, when we can access our higher selves, we all want to create a better world. Absolutely. Mm. So have these conversations been had in schools before? I think it's potentially been done not well. Right. And, you know, that's often what we hear from schools and particularly from boys who the biggest thing for us is developing levels of psychological safety and trust and respect and speaking with them, not at them. Mm. That's just like a game changer, particularly traditional classrooms, like kind of speak at and then kids wrote, learn information and regurgitate it back. Yeah, you're, you're creating a bit more of a workshop scenario, right, where information is flowing both ways. Exactly. Yeah, it's a conversation. It's like that cooler cousin that your family get together who you just want to sit next to and just go, they want you to ask, how are you going here? And they yeah. feel that sense of like, oh, that person's like me. I don't want my teacher who's teaching me trigonometry to suddenly talk to me about consent and the nuances of masculinity. So it needs to come from outside potentially? I think it makes a difference, you know, and yeah. there's some like, you know, real evidence behind this too, that when we're 12 to 16, we break away from our parents and we seek mentoring and guidance elsewhere. And that's mm. where the village, the community used to come in or the rite of passage used to come in. Mm. Now we don't necessarily have that. Our rite of passage is like go to schoolies, get drunk, first time taking drugs, first time having sex, whatever it may be. And I think there's still something in us and the data backs this up that we do seek those lessons from those outside of our parents in those formative teenage years. And I'm interested in your view on this because there are different schools of thought in terms of gender and how much of it is socialised and how much is biological and ingrained. In your view, in the journey of reclaiming masculinity, like, do you talk about socialisation of gender but also celebrate some things that may perhaps be biologically entrenched? I think a really important thing is it's not about throwing away our favourite masculine traits. Absolutely not. But it's about embracing more of our humanity. And that comes with practice of developing our emotional range. Mm. So like I live from my experience, like I didn't grow up talking about my feelings. Like I didn't absolutely like anything. I remember I topped the grade in art in year nine and my mate goes, that's a bit gay. I was like, well, art's done. That's it. Right. (laughs) And like, but, and so a big journey for me now has been reclaiming back that creative side of myself. And I find when I'm able to kind of, I guess, go through that experience and feel like it's the scariest thing in the world. And I go, oh, I survived. And now I've just got a bit more range in my identity. And I think that's what's really important about this narrative for men is like the script that was handed to say my father and my grandfather was very different on what was required for masculinity then to this conversation now. I would say we're at a time in between stories. I think we're, as you say, partway on this intergenerational change where masculinity is becoming more nuanced and you can you can appreciate both. Mm. And, you know, I've sort of been on all sides of it, being a country kid, um, one of four boys as well, grew up with lots of intense cliche 
masculine experiences like playing football and fighting and, and that kind of stuff. But then I've lived in the inner city, played in a band where we wore complete ridiculously floral outfits and did synchronised dancing. So I think the nuance is there for a lot of blokes and we are changing, but in certain situations, certain dynamics tank over and these sort of primal pack instincts can create bad behaviours. We're starting to see boys who are seeking confidence, they're seeking purpose, they're seeking belonging and a positive future. And so that's what's very nuanced about where we're at now is when they grow up hearing a story that they're bad or wrong or toxic, they go, well, I'm going to live into that, you know, or I'm going to find somewhere that sees me and gives me a sense of confidence. And that's really, I think, can be very scary. I'm interested in the forgotten Aussie bloke. He's probably straight, working class, doesn't feel seen or heard. There's not a lot of research or discussion about him. He's not intersectional. He doesn't have an intersectional identity. Are they the sorts of young men that you find are really craving a way forward or craving to be heard? Yeah, the conversations which we've had is just these, these men are just really feeling confused. They're like, where did this come from? So we also do a lot of work with dads or the male role models. So you kind of get the both ends of the spectrum. Mm. And um, they were talking about like as a joke with some truth to it that they feel like an endangered species. They're like suddenly everything's coming for us. But what is not often understood is that from their point of view, they're saying their life has been really hard. And I think that, again, is the really interesting thing about struggle, right? It's very relative. Mm. So if we're working in a private school, we work with all schools, all socioeconomic backgrounds, the private school boys might not have a parent figure there that's present or a father figure there because he's at the office. Mm. But if I'm working in a really regional town, the the male father figure might not be there because he's not in the life. They have very different life experiences but similar problems. So obviously there's a lot of work to do. Firstly, perhaps renaming or rephrasing toxic masculinity. So my first question is, what would you call it? And B, the bigger question is, how on earth do we address all of these entrenched social attitudes? So I, I think I'll leave the phraseology to the to the experts. And, you know, I think my role often at times is just to be the translator for, for a lot of these young men who just want to be good and absolutely are at their core, but just need, you know, to be delivered a message that really meets them where they're at in language that they understand and they can choose, you know, do I want to be someone that contributes or challenges systems? I think we have to go preventative with this and I think we have to go positive. I think a lot of the money, whether it's mental illness, family violence, gender equality is geared around crisis management. We throw money at symptoms because it fits an election cycle. But actually, I think we've got to go early on and work with boys in their formative years and then work with the people that educate these boys, whoever they have the most face time with, whether it's the, you know, the parents, the coaches, the mentors, the teachers. But we're now at a point where we have to evolve and we're being asked something different of us. We can all feel it. And I think, yeah, this is something that needs to be put on the national agenda to invest in boys to be better young men, not just for those boys, for their relationships and their communities too. That was Hunter Johnson, the founder and CEO of Man Cave, which is an emotional intelligence charity that's taking on masculinity. And gee, Tom, I just wish more people would listen to Hunter talk. I think those workshops in schools sound really good. But that would be hard to do on a scalable, sustainable level where it's a, you know, a regular part of young boys' lives, I think. As he sort of touched on at the end, it's about, I think, bringing these conversations, these nuanced ideas of masculinity into, into the conversations that boys and young men are having with the, the role, role models, models in their day-to-day life. So that's teachers, sporting coaches, uncles, dads, mm-hmm. older brothers, 
those kind of people. So empowering them with the kind of language that helps break through some of the negative stereotypes and and focus on the, the positive behaviours and, and cultural change that will help men become even better men. Yeah, and I think the, the imp- really important takeaway is, yes, you know, men who behave badly or men who don't have those positive role models, yes, they are a danger to women and society, but mostly they're a danger to themselves. Listener.